Billy Budd is a beautiful man. Not just good-looking, but exquisitely good-natured, something that costs him no effort and has required no instruction. And yet it is ultimately his beautiful soul and good nature that get Billy killed. Today we'll be talking about Herman Melville's final and unfinished work of fiction, and whether a good heart and good intentions are more important than obedience to authority and adherence to civilized norms. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. So Aaron, someone asked me if we were doing a Halloween-themed episode, and I said, unfortunately, we hadn't planned on that. But now it's the day after Halloween, and uh, well, listeners won't hear this for another three weeks, but for us, it's the day after Halloween. And I was thinking, well, maybe Billy Budd is our Halloween episode, because it is a bit spooky, or at the very least, Melville kind of walks up right up to the line of spookiness. I mean, spooky isn't probably isn't the right adjective, but you know, it's not a ghost story. It's not a slasher pick. There's nothing explicitly paranormal, but I would say that, you know, if there's anything close to paranormal, it's the character of Billy Budd himself. He's an unusual guy. Huh? That's interesting. I would think that Claggart makes it a Halloween story, if anything, but certainly Billy Budd is, he's the monster, I guess. Yeah, and Billy Budd is Jamie Lee Curtis. So, <laughs> wait a minute. How, how is Billy Budd Jamie Lee Curtis? I don't know. The young innocent who almost get well. Okay, he's not. He's like the girl in her underwear who gets killed in the like the first act of the movie. Yes, exactly. That's true. Except that he's not getting killed for being sexual. <laughs> for, so wait, you were th- thinking of Jamie Lee Curtis and what? What were you thinking of her in? In Halloween, right? I know that, but I've never seen it. If I have seen it, it was so long ago. I don't remember. I I know she's in the new one because my residents here started watching the latest Halloween last night and she's older and she's in it. So I guess that means she was in the, the original as well. Is that what that means? Yeah, I think they were doing these kind of reboots or something of that. Okay. Or not rebooting, but continuing to tell the story. Yeah, well, you know, the... The character of Billy Budd, I call it paranormal because it's he's such an unusual person, although the way Melville begins the story, he describes him as if he were a kind of generic type, the handsome sailor who's really good looking and dresses in a certain attractive way, even though he's not technically a dandy or something like that. You know, in the first chapter, he describes him as having a quote unquote, barbaric, good humor. And in the second chapter, we'll find out, you know, he's called a rustic beauty. He has a reposeful good nature, you know, a kind of no uncultivated intelligence and a nobility of expression, innocence. He's called the upright barbarian. So he's, he's kind of described in several different ways as a, as a noble savage. Mm-hmm. This is the best description of him. And this is in chapter two. His simple nature remained unsophisticated by those moral obliquities, which are not in every case incompatible with that manufacturable thing known as respectability. 
I love the idea of the, he's the rustic beauty. He's also referred to as having a, I think, a novice magnanimity at, at some point. And um, I wanted to find this, this part with the, this is from the, towards the end, with the chaplain, um, where he describes Billy as being like one of the, the British captives, the living trophies made to march in the Roman triumph of Germanicus. The Pope of that time, admiring the strangeness of their personal beauty, this is describing the Pope looking at these uh, British captives of, of the late Roman Empire, admiring the strangeness of their personal beauty so unlike the Italian stamp, their clear ruddy complexion and curled flaxen locks, exclaimed angles, meaning English, the modern derivative. Angles, do you call them? And it is because they look so like angels. Had it been later in time, one would think that the Pope had in mind Fra Angelico seraphs, some of whom, plucking apples in gardens of the Hesperides, have the faint rosebud complexion of the more beautiful English girls. So he looks, he looks like an angel. He's so often described in feminine terms that I think there's right. maybe something going on there. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's, it's strange. I don't, I don't quite believe Billy as a, as a character. I mean, I, he seems to me to be purely symbolic. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think you're right, because in some of the reading for this, I, I saw it referred to as a tragedy, and it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that, even though formally, perhaps it's a tragedy. Part of the reason it's not a tragedy is because he doesn't really have a flaw. So he does have a flaw, obviously, right, which is the stutter, mm-hmm. which is a larger flaw than just having a stutter, right, because it's it, when he's under pressure, he begins to stutter and he can't communicate. So there's a sense in which his purity is incommunicable. He's all nature, right? He's so all natural that there's no words in a way to express him and he can't put himself into words. So there is that sort of flaw, but it's still a kind of innocent flaw. It's not the sort of monomania or or ambition or whatever you want to call it that you associate with tragedy or at least I associate with tragedy. I know that's a other forms in a way. But I, I have trouble seeing this as, as a tragedy because it's he's too much of a cipher. He's too much of a symbol to really fully identify with him mm. and to fully empathize with him. I don't find myself in a state of empathy for him or sad when he, when he dies at the end. Although there is a way in which it's, it's horrifying. And that's part of what, you know, I think why I thought of this as a Halloween story, but I don't feel so connected to him as a character. And despite the fact that he's so well-liked on the ship, that's perhaps what actually gets him into trouble in the story as well. There's something inhuman about him. Yeah, I I like what you say about his stutter. And I I was thinking too, with that flaw, much is made of the fact that he's not, he's not quote unquote civilized or he's not part of the realm of civilization in some way. And language, I think, is a mark of civilization. Like the ability to converse with people on a fundamental level unites people, I guess, in, in a community. And, and so his inability to express himself, I was thinking this morning about just how many characters in this, in this story are passive. Mm. There are so many passive characters. And I think that, I wonder if Billy's flaw as expressed by the that stutter, is ultimately like a kind of passivity or a, a disengagement from society, which is actually a bad thing. Billy, from the very start, like even when he's impressed on the indomitable, he, he doesn't really fight. There's no fight to be had over it, as, as Melville explains. Even if he 
were to protest, it wouldn't matter. He's going to be impressed anyway. But the men watching him from go from, from rights of man feel, I think, a little bit betrayed that Billy's not at least trying to put up a fight and show a little bit of loyalty to them. So he's, he's passive in that way. I think the incident of maybe spilling his soup is a kind of, expresses a kind of passivity. And the fact that he doesn't report that strange, oh, that's also a good Halloween moment when he has that shadowy encounter with that guy who's maybe interested in starting a mutiny. He doesn't report it. Right. And lots of other characters, I think, are passive too, which is interesting. But I think maybe this speaks to that novice magnanimity of Billy's, that maybe because he's such a natural man, he's kind of like out, he's outside of morality and therefore can't make quite the best decision because I think like good decision making takes a kind of an active nature rather than a passive one. So his problems with self-expression, I think are, they're confined to a certain area, right? So he can express his goodwill. He can express his magnanimity and his sense of ease with himself and his comfort in his own skin and the sorts of things that will become objects of envy for Claggart. What he can't express is his aggression, right? Or he he can express it, so he, he can be violent. We know that from mm-hmm. what he does to Claggart, and I think he has a story about him getting in a physical fight earlier on. There's nothing in between those two extremes, it seems, of physical violence and pure passivity. He can't stand up for himself, and at the point where he has to stand up for himself, he is the speech is going to fail him. And I like the way you put it. I think that is related to being outside of morality. There's a sense in which he's outside of civilization. And that's, of course, emphasized over and over again in the story that he's a kind of noble savage. And when Melville says he's unsophisticated by those moral obliquities that are not incompatible with respectability, he's saying that often the the kinds of virtues that go along with being civilized, these sorts of appearances and forms and and, uh, ritualized behaviors that we engage in, including, say, politeness or other forms like that, they're often just a cover for our irrationality and our, as they are in Claggart, but also our viciousness, the sorts of vices that we keep hidden. And the suggestion that he's unsophisticated by those things, the suggestion is that it's because of his natural moral purity that he's not capable of keeping up appearances, of putting up all the trappings that we associate with civilization. So here's the way he, he put it. And here be it submitted that apparently going to corroborate the doctrine of man's fall, a doctrine now popularly ignored, It is observable that where certain virtues pristine and unadulterate peculiarly characterize anybody in the external uniform of civilization, they will upon scrutiny seem not to be derived from custom or convention, but rather to be out of keeping with these, as if indeed exceptionally transmitted from a period prior to Cain's city and citified men. The character marked by such qualities has to an unvitiated taste and untampered with flavor, like that of berries. While the man thoroughly civilized, even in a fair specimen of the breed, has to the same moral palate a questionable smack of a compounded wine. This is a long way of saying that he's not just virtuous, but that he's pure and that his virtue isn't manifested in the way virtues typically are as a product of civilization and what he calls the external uniform of civilization, 
but it's prelapsarian, right? It's the sort of noble savage type of virtue that has nothing to do with civilization. And that's what's manifested by Billy. And it, you know, later on, the suggestion is that typically we associate virtue with habituation, right? You have to have a certain kind of upbringing. Your parents have to say no a lot and, and correct your behavior and you internalize that. And ultimately that reflects certain cultural norms that we internalize. We're made to follow certain rules and that's how we become virtuous. But with Billy, we have the spectacle of someone who is virtuous by nature, which seems on the account that I've just given almost a contradiction, right? If virtue is something habituated and intimately related to civilization, how could it possibly be something natural? I suppose the flip side of that is to see Melville's sort of theories here, or the narrator's theories, about the difference between a sailor's vices and a city man's vices. Because I think there's that kind of the natural virtue versus the acquired <laughs> virtue, let's call it, seems to, seems to have a parallel for him to the natural vices of the sailors on shore leave versus the urbane, as he frequently calls Claggart urbane, I think, or, or evil as being urbane, the citified vices of people who are supposed to know better or something, as if sailors are, I mean, he, he kind of repeatedly infantilizes sailors, that they're sort of these unthinking, fly by the seat of their pants kind of, kind of people who just can be whipped up into a frenzy at a moment's notice. They can be quelled by a strong hand. You know, he, he calls them children a lot. And so their vices, he argues, are not as malicious or evil as a, a landlubber's vices. Yeah, it's in chapter 16. And I, I was surprised by that chapter in a way because he's been he's been emphasizing Billy's innocence in a way that seemed to contrast with other sailors, right? Other sailors are more wise to the world, more cynical, and, and here's this innocent kid who's very unlike everyone else on the ship. And then we get to chapter 16, and all of a sudden we get an account of the innocent quality of sailors in general. The sailor is frankness. The landsman is finesse. <laughs> could read this whole chapter. It's, it's so. Yeah, I think starting with the sailor is frankness. The landsman is finesse. You could read from there on. The sailor is frankness. The landsman is finesse. Life is not a game with the sailor demanding the long head. No intricate game of chess where few moves are made in straightforwardness and ends are attained by indirection. An oblique, tedious, barren game hardly worth that poor candle burnt out in playing it. Yes, as a class, sailors are in character a juvenile race. Even deviations are marked by juvenility, and this more especially holding true with the sailors of Billy's time. Then, too, certain things which apply to all sailors do more pointedly operate here and there upon the junior one. Every sailor, too, is accustomed to obey orders without debating them. His life afloat is externally ruled for him. He is not brought into that promiscuous commerce with mankind, where unobstructed free agency on equal terms, equal superficially at least, soon teaches one that unless upon occasion he exercise a distrust keen in proportion to the fairness of the appearance, some foul turn may be served him. A ruled, undemonstrative distrustfulness is so habitual, not with businessmen so much, as with men who know their kind in less shallow relations than business, namely certain men of the world, that they come at last to employ it all but unconsciously, and some of them would very likely feel real surprised at being charged with it as one of their general characteristics. I just want to say for listeners, this novel is written in English. <laughs> <laughs> This novella. <laughs> the, more, the more times I read it, the more like, how come I was confused by this the first time? But now like reading it aloud and hearing me read it aloud, I'm like, 
what is happening? <laughs> well, you quickly adapt. I think after reading it once and deciphering it, then you can you can listen to it and now you speak the language. But for many sections in this novel, I was confused and had, had to do some deciphering. Although that's earlier on, it's harder and the language actually loosens up uh, as the novel goes on. It, it's not as syntactically complex as the novel progresses, but there are a lot of very syntactically complex sentences with multiple negatives. So you have to figure out how the equation balances out. You do a little math and okay, is he asserting it or denying it? <laughs> the effect I think is beautiful. I, I like this complicated use of language, but so this chapter, he starts talking about Billy Budd as a child man. You know, he said, but in Billy Budd intelligence, such as it was had advanced while yet his simple mindedness remained for the most part unaffected experience as a teacher, but he had none of that intuitive knowledge of the bad, which in nature is not good or incompletely so for Run's experience. And what could Billy Budd know of man except of man as a mere sailor? The sailor is frankness. So this is what's confusing to me. You know, he's, he's a man child. He's unique among the sailors. And then all of a sudden we get him as sort of fitting into the typology of the sailor. So maybe, maybe what we have to conclude from this is he is the limiting case of for a sailor. He is a sailor in his purest possible form. So we can learn something about Billy Budd by saying what a sailor is. And that has something to do with their, you know, they're confined to a ship. They're not on land. They are part of this prescribed community in which everything is governed by rules and by a certain kind of obedience to superiors and a strict hierarchy, everything that goes along with being in the, in the military. So it's markedly different from what happens on land, which is to say what happens in everyday society. It lacks a lot of the sophistication and therefore a lot of the pretense of that, a lot of the... Mm the clash between what's going on at the level of appearance and what's going on underneath that, the subtext of that. So in a way it's that in regular society, there are the, there are the forms, right? There are social forms and norms and you behave in certain ways out of politeness, for instance, there are lots of ways in which our behaviors are governed by the requirements of civilization and it's not that that's absent on a ship. That's actually, in a way, heightened, right? The lives of the sailors are governed more strictly by such rules than are ours. They engage in all sorts of rituals. They're, you know, every part of their day is marked by being called to this or that ceremony. But the difference is that there's no tension between that and some other thing that's going on on beneath that. So on, we landlubbers are hypocrites in a sense. We we observe a lot of these things, but there's we have ulterior motives, and we you know if we're we may show up to a business meeting being all niceness and and formality, but really we're trying to obtain an advantage. So that's the kind of tension, for instance, that's implied. But that sort of thing doesn't exist on the ship. It's all just you follow the rules and those rules serve a certain objective and the, the tension vanishes. Far be it from me to, to disagree with Melville about life on a ship. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he obviously speaks from experience. I suppose I agree with him to a point. So if, if this idea of Billy as being like the, the sort of the uber sailor who's, who's so childlike, whose intelligence has advanced to a certain point, but his simple mindedness 
has remained, that's supposed to stay back in childhood, but the simple-mindedness has also come with him. And that sailors in general are this innocent, unsophisticated people, and that landlubbers are are distrustful. I mean, I, I just, I teach at an all-boys school. So I see this probably... You are on a ship. Right. And of course, rules and regulations and things like that are, are going to preserve that. I mean, this is part of the nature of, of a school is that this kind of instruction and law and order are necessary for this age group. And, and perhaps that does create a kind of a stunted quality in adult men. But I, I just see so much of what he's describing landlubbers to be like among these boys. I mean... Okay, so I do see what he's saying to a certain extent, but I wonder how much of that is just a function of the the adolescence of the of the boys that I teach and not anything particularly true about the nature of a ship as preserving that adolescence. Well, you seem to be noting the natural orneriness of the boys, right? I don't mean to say that I think that teenage boys are particularly devious. I'm saying that I think that any any kind of place is going to have certain odd characteristics to a certain extent, I think it also is just going to represent a microcosm of the rest of the world by the same token. Right. Right. So you're going to have devious people, distrustful people. You're going to have someone like Claggart on your ship. Right. Exactly. Because Claggart himself breaks that rule. And the idea of the impressment of the sailors also breaks that rule, right? Because... Right. And the worry about mutiny. So this is, you know, right. that, that's all of this occurs against the backdrop of this is um, set in 1797, I think, right? Mm-hmm. There recently have been two mutinies, the Nor and the... Spithead. Spithead mutinies. And the Nor was the more prolonged mutiny and ended up with some some executions. And these these mutinies are sort of, you know, England is at war with post-revolutionary France and the mutinies are are seen as sort of in line with a revolutionary ethos and as a threat to England's system of government being the one old world power that's still conservative in a sense that hasn't succumbed to what's what's going on in France. So, yeah, this, there's an atmosphere of fear about the possibility of mutiny and the possibility that there are sailors who are ready to pounce at any time and take out the officers and take over the ship. And so there's, there's that. And there's lots of other things in the novel to suggest that we shouldn't really think of sailors as an innocent breed as, as being, and Billy as being one of their type or the best representative of their type. And that's why I thought this chapter was, was really odd. This is an unfinished novella, and I wonder what Melville would have done with this in the end. He probably would have seen the tension between this and the rest of the uh, the text and maybe worked out a compromise. And I think, as, as you said, I, we can see the truth of this, and I tried to explain some of that in terms of the way the norms of behavior work on the ship as, the, as opposed to the way they work on land, where there's, there's less opportunity for autonomy in sailors, and so there's less opportunity for for subtext for trying to use those forms as means to an end as opposed to just obeying the orders that they're getting from on high but yeah it's it's an unusual chapter and for those of you who are drinking at home that's now two mentions of subtext in this episode so (laughs) (laughs) 
you got to plug. It's really about <laughs> subliminal advertising in the end. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So in, in chapter eight, I think it is, Melville tells tells us that basically we can never understand Claggart, which is good. We could stop this episode right now. So we have more than one inexplicable character in this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but that's, that's actually kind of just what I want to briefly talk about for a second is how interesting the narration of this is throughout. It reminds me of this short story I teach alongside Bartleby, actually, to my students called Wakefield, which is a lesser known Hawthorne short story where the whole pretense of the story is that Hawthorne is saying that he read this story in a newspaper and he can't really remember the particulars, but it was about this guy. And, and basically, he does this sort of thought experiment where he imagines the guy from the newspaper, like what made him do the crazy thing that he did. It's a great story. I recommend it to everybody. But the whole pretext of the story is the fact that Hawthorne like did or did not actually read this newspaper article. So the whole thing is set up as like a kind of a fact that he's just expanding upon. Mm. And Melville does that too. Like at the end of the story, he's like, well, you know, forgive me if there are no, if there's no easy way to tie up this story because when a story is true, there's no easy way to, to tie it up. And he has all these little asides and these... Like he acts as though these people are real and therefore like fundamentally inexplicable, but then he's going to try and go ahead and explain. So just the 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 nature of that narration I find so fascinating. Yeah, it's so strongly it's so strongly allegorical and yet he's he's trying to tell us that otherwise as if it's some sort of news account. It's great. Like he he says, uh, this is about Claggart, his portrait I essay, but shall never hit it. It's like, okay. Yep. Claggart is an interesting guy. So he's the master at arms. So so he's like a the police chief. He's kind of a head of a, of the secret police. Master of arms used to used to train people in in the use of arms and manage that, but that function ceased, as Melville puts it, and he became a sort of secret chief of police charged with preserving order. Yeah, and he's he's a good looking guy. He's he's like a Greek medallion, except for his sort of heavy chin, which is interesting. But the the thing that makes him immediately out to be suspicious, perhaps, is the fact that he has this white-skinned complexion, which contrasts with the, the red or the bronze faces of the sailors, because Claggart is always below deck. Like Melville says that even the fact that he's always below deck can't really account for how pale he is. And that contrast with the other sailors is is notable. So there's something really sinister about that, I think. Like you have the the frankness of the men in the sun getting getting red, getting tan. There's a kind of uh, like an honesty <laughs> about that. Whereas Claggart lurking in the shadows, being pale, like we can we can tell that he's not a not a not a, a good guy. He's a ghoulish type of figure. Right. So he's almost like a a monster. <laughs> <laughs> so his complexion though it was not exactly displeasing, nevertheless seemed to hint of something defective or abnormal in the constitution and blood. But his general aspect and manner were so suggestive of an education and career incongruous with his naval function that when not actively engaged in it, he looked like a man of high quality, social moral, who for reasons of his own was keeping incog. This is contrasted with Billy Bud, who we learn was, was left in a basket um, <laughs> oh, really? And, Did yeah. We, I didn't realize that. So like Moses. Yeah, exactly. The narrator says, yes, Billy Budd was a foundling, a presumable by-blow, and evidently no ignoble one. Noble descent was as evident in him as in a blood horse. Hmm. Yeah, so the, this suggestion of something greater in Claggart is going to turn out to be 
false, but the, the, the whole, you know, we never learned Billy's parentage or anything, but he's, he's evidently noble. So with, with Billy Budd and with Claggart and Veer, we, we get three characters who are kind of out of place on the, in this environment in their different ways. And what Claggart and Veer seem to have in common is this education that's incongruous with their being in the Navy. So maybe a, a level of sophistication that doesn't seem to match their, their career. And then that's just basically where the similarities end. And with Claggart, we get this, I, there's talk of an accent and maybe he's not even English. He's naturalized and he, uh, so there's like a hint of an accent. And then there, there's sort of rumors that go around the, the crew, you know, maybe he was impressed people. I don't think we define that, which is to say they, Billy is impressed at the beginning. He's taken by force off a merchant ship and they're told that you have to be a Marine now. You have to serve the Royal Navy now. In Claggart's case, there are rumors that he was impressed from prison, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe out of debtor's prison or something like that. Nothing about this is really known. And I think Melville chalks this up to the lack of imagination on the part of the sailors where they detect something sinister in him and they have to associate that with criminality of the usual sort of the ordinary and degraded sort when Claggart is actually not that kind of criminal. He's more of a maniacal master villain, let's say, even though he's (laughs) he doesn't do such a great job of that. He gets taken out pretty easily and quickly, but. Yeah, that's true. That's actually really funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's as if Dr. Evil were just knocked out cold in the very first scene. <laughs> you know, we get a lot of characterization with him. You know, it's in this chapter and then in chapter 11. He's kind of like the flip side of Billy, where, where Billy is the natural man. Claggart is, is natural depravity. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's really important. So these are both of these things we tend to associate with, again, with habituation or upbringing or education, something like that, where it's a virtuousness and viciousness, mm-hmm. which are the result of, of uh, acculturation to a large extent. But temperament does play a, play a role too. But I, I think we might not be used to thinking that people could be just born this way, that it could be completely natural, that one could be either naturally virtuous and good or naturally evil in the way it suggests that Claggart is. I suppose I have a better time believing in natural mm. depravity, but I think what he's... Why is that? Oh, well, <laughs> I think anyone who knows um, a strong-willed two-year-old will have trouble uh, <laughs> <laughs> believing that this sort of romantic ideal that that we're all just born these innocent little cherubs and then society naturally corrupts us. And I think that virtue really doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, if we think about infants, they're they're neither virtuous nor vicious, right? So they might seem cherubic at times and cute and purely innocent. And at other times they are just selfish little monsters who just have their desires and needs and want those met and don't give a crap about anyone else. <laughs> But they they sort of transcend those distinctions there because they haven't reached that point of maturity where we can start saying, oh, this person has a character where we can start blaming them for things and saying they. But I do think it has something to do with the point at which character starts to solidify and where we see certain habits develop and people habits of mind and thinking and just as much as habits of behavior. It's, it's somehow it's easier to condemn people once they've been civilized, essentially. What Claggart is, I think this is a description of a sociopath. Am I wrong? This is like pretty, pretty sociopathic. 
probably. What we do know is that he is absolutely tortured by by envy. Chapter 11 is where we get the idea that he's vicious by nature, not because of habituation and that Claggart's viciousness, you can't, it's not really a matter of worldly experience. You have to have a certain spiritual insight into him because he's not obviously an outwardly criminal and because he does have this reasonable mind and reasonable outward behavior, but it it serves these really irrational heart and sane goals. And, and it's essentially, you know, it bears the mantle of re- respectability and it's at home in civilization. And then it's in chapter 12 that we find out that Claggart is driven by envy of Billy Budd and in particular envy of Billy Budd's goodness and Billy Budd's lack of malice. And there's a great quote there about, so he envy, envies a nature that, quote, in its simplicity, never willed malice or experienced the reactionary bite of that serpent. And then we hear that Claggart is the only one, quote, he's the only one who adequately appreciated the moral phenomenon presented in Billy Budd. Mm-hmm. So there's a strange sense in which Claggart is more aware of Billy Budd's goodness and what it represents than anyone else. And that that is part of what tortures him because, you know, there's a suggestion here that he might also might have loved that they're like star-crossed lovers or ill-fated lovers that whether in the platonic or sexual sense, I think is meant to be ambiguous, but that he might've loved this person dearly if that had been possible. I think what we're being told is that Claggart wants to be as good as Billy. He wants to have that goodness, but he can't so that he must act out his own evil part. He simply, he's stuck being himself. Billy is an entirely different sort of character He's his own sort of character. As much as he aspires to be someone like Billy, which I think it's clear he does, he he can't do that, and he can't even have him as a as a friend, really, because his character is too incompatible. Therefore, he must destroy it. So that's essentially what what envy is all about, right? You got to yeah, destroy I, it because you haven't can't have it. But sorry for that long speech. Go ahead. Now, when I read this, I immediately thought of of one of my favorite hobby horse subjects, which is um, the the contrast between Mozart and Salieri, mm. or rather the, you know, the ahistorical version of these two figures that we get in the plays and in the movie Amadeus, which I really want to cover at some point. It's one of my favorite movies. But the parallels here, I think, are really strong, actually. So in this telling, Mozart is kind of presented as the romantic you know, the natural man, right? Like he's, he's flawed though. So he's like one of those sailors on shore leave that, that Melville describes where his flaws are from this kind of like explosion of pent up emotion from, from being held captive on a ship for so long. So that's why they go and they have, you know, they have sex with a lot of women and everything. And they, they engage in all these kind of vices when they're on shore. So Mozart is that kind of uh, person, I think. And, and Mozart too, like is, is this kind of romantic figure because he's shown, in the play and in the movie as transcribing his compositions all the time, you know, like they're, they're these divine gifts, even though this has been kind of disproved, I think, like, I think Mozart actually revised and worked on a lot of stuff. He, he wasn't just purely transcribing everything. So that's kind of a romantic myth about him maybe. And then Salieri is as a claggart, admittedly a much better and more sympathetic Claggart. But the fact that the tension between these two figures is that Salieri can envy Mozart more than anyone else because he has the the tools to understand Mozart's genius better than anybody else can. Mm-hmm. And so that reverse is interesting because 
Salieri also like destroys Mozart and then in the process sort of destroys himself. And so even though Billy kills Claggart, the same kind of tension happens here that just just the fact that Claggart has kind of set these wheels in motion has allowed Billy, even though he's able to lash out and to kill Claggart, allows Billy's own demise to kind of follow from that. So that idea that one would be the the study of music, right? Like Salieri doesn't have any kind of inherent genius, but he has this super, super trained intellectual uh, knowledge of, of music, which allows him to so appreciate what comes naturally to Mozart, which is just this natural gift from God. And I think that urbanity that training, because I suppose in Claggart, it's like training how to best take advantage of people is how, how he would have this understanding of this kind of unaffected uh, goodness is maybe the wrong word, but this, this sort of innocence. Claggart's study of that innocence, I think, is maybe the parallel that I'm finding. I, and it's not a perfect parallel, obviously, but, but music and, and the fact that there could be this dual nature to something that can either be naturally inborn or acquired with a lot of study. Well, I think you're, you're getting at the peculiar nature of envy, which is that it is very attuned to the good. The capacity to be envious is intimately related to the desire for, the, for what's good and the, even the desire to be good, strangely enough. So Melville's in this chapter 12 actually gives a very sophisticated account of envy. You know, he starts off by saying, now envy and antipathy, passions irreconcilable in reason, Nevertheless, in fact, may spring conjoined like Chang and Eng in one birth. Is envy then such a monster? What he's saying there is that there's, there's a difference between hating someone because they've slighted you, because they've done you wrong, and hating someone because they have something that you want. It's, mm. it's kind of odd when you think about it. Billy Budd is so good, and I want to be good, and I want to have that. Why do, why do I need to destroy it? Why does wanting to be like Billy Budd or to have that quality that's in him, why does that lead to the desire to destroy him? And this is a big, you know, envy is a pretty foundational concept actually in, in psychoanalysis. So it's a big subject and it's, I've always found it extremely difficult to understand. And there's a, there's a lot of literature on this, but I think part of what's going on is that there is a despair at the idea that what is good is outside of us. We want to have it very simply and naturally inside of ourselves. So that goes even for at a very early age, right? Maternal ministrations, including mother's milk. There are certain theorists who will say, some Melanie Klein is among them, that the envy is of the good thing itself in the sense that you want to take it inside of you and have it simply inside of you. So you're not dependent on the vagaries of something that's outside of you. You know, is mother going to come back? Am I going to get fed again? Am I going to get fed on time? So the idea of destroying it is related to the idea of just consuming it and taking it into oneself finally and not having to be tormented by the fact that it is a separate thing from you. Mm. So that's a that's a little sketch of some of the issues involved here. But what he what Melville does is he goes on to say that oddly enough, Claggart's malice. Let's just read some of this. Claggart's envy struck deeper. If askance he eyed the good looks, cheery health, and frank enjoyment of young life in Billy Budd, it was because these went along with a nature that, as Claggart magnetically felt, had in its simplicity never willed malice or experienced the reactionary bite of that serpent. To him, the spirit lodged within Billy, and looking out from his welkin eyes as from windows, that ineffability it was which made the dimple in his dyed cheek, 
suppled his joints, and dancing in his yellow curls made him preeminently the handsome sailor. One person accepted the master-at-arms was perhaps the only man in the ship intellectually capable of adequately appreciating the moral phenomenon presented in Billy Budd. Okay, so I stand corrected. It's uh, probably Veer is the other one, right? Yeah. And the insight but intensified this passion, which, assuming various secret forms within him, at times assumed that of a cynic disdain, disdain of innocence, to be nothing more than innocent. Yet in an aesthetic way, he saw the charm of it, the courageous, free and easy temper of it, and fain would have shared it, but he despaired of it. With no power to annul the elemental evil in him, though readily enough he could hide it, apprehending the good, but powerless to be it. A nature like Claggart's, surcharged with energy, as such natures almost inevitably are, what recourse is left to it but to recoil upon itself, and, like a scorpion for which the creator alone is responsible, act out to the end the part allotted to it. So that is fantastic and mm. really psychologically spot on and, and uh, subtle. So we, we could have done a whole episode on this and just talked about the psychology of, of envy that Melville does so well in describing. It's my understanding, and perhaps you touched on this, I'm sorry, that there are really two kinds of envy then. There's like a malicious form of, of envy, which involves the desire to destroy the other person who has the thing that, that you want or, or to begrudge them something. And then there's a kind of an admiring form of envy. So like a certain amount of envy is healthy, right? It tends towards a kind of self-improvement. You want to make yourself better. You see something that someone else has and you say, okay, I'm going to improve myself in order to get that thing or to be that. Psychoanalysts might avoid calling one of those things envy, but I think you're right. They're related. Seeing something out side of oneself and identifying with it and wanting to become like it, wanting to become it. Those are developmentally, of course, you know, normal and important and they help us have and achieve ambitions. And the distinguishing feature here is the sense that Claggart has that he's, he despairs of it. So he can't have it. He can't become it. Yeah. And that's, and that's the idea here is that there can be no positive element to his, I mean, if we take that as what I said for being somewhat true or whatever, that there are these two strains of envy, it could never be the positive form of envy for Claggart or even for in the, the Mozart Salieri analogy for, for Salieri, because the thing he's envious of innocence is something he's incapable of getting back. He's incapable of emulating it because once lost, it's lost forever. Then, you know, Salieri too, like sees the the pure gift of Mozart, which he's incapable of ever attaining so that no matter how hard you work, even if you achieve the same heights as Mozart or something, you can never have the natural gift. Like the, mm. the, wor the working is what makes it unlike Mozart, the striving. And no matter how Claggart strives, he can never go back to the, the prelapsarian state that that Billy represents. Right. If we have a healthier adjustment, then when we're motivated by having, say, you know, role models, for instance, which is part of what you're talking about, we stay a bit agnostic about whether we have a the natural talent to live up to that role model. And we just enjoy the fact that there's something to aspire to and the process of working towards that and trying to live up to that, whatever our natural capacities may be. Part of what fuels envy is an intolerance for the uncertainty involved in that and a demand to actually live up to the ideal. So it's one thing to have aspirations and it's another to think that living up to them is absolutely necessary to one's existence and one cannot live without it. And so there's an intolerance for longing. There's an intolerance for this thing 
being outside of oneself in a way it's like I having the feeling that I have to have this now and anything less than that is is terrible so it deprives people of the capacity even to work towards what they want it's too crippling so part of what has crippled claggart is that he is so strongly oriented towards the good strangely enough he's so strongly oriented towards wanting to have it that he can't let himself fall short of it and be in a tense relation of desire towards it it's got to be all or nothing and so if it can't be all then his role is to try and destroy its existence outside of himself so he doesn't have to be tormented by the appearance of it right by the fact that it's outside of him so if, if an envious person could get rid of everything good in the world so that they'd have nothing to envy then at least they'd be free of that torment even if they didn't have anything positively good for themselves hmm. very good comparison to salieri and mozart i think that's very informative the whole mozart salieri thing i think about all the time yeah. And I think that most people can be with a lot of virtues. People are either a Mozart or a Salieri, right? <laughs> like, like some people just have a natural, I don't know. I have a lot of theories about that, that people always envy those others who have virtues that were part of their, their nature mm-hmm. that we all envy the virtues that other people have. Yeah, no, I think, I think this is important because it's part of what gets Billy Budd in trouble is this. It doesn't seem like he has to work for anything. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's, any of his good qualities have cost him anything. He's a naturally envy producing sort of character and it's going to lead him to, there's a kind of monomaniacal obsession that Claggart has with Billy Budd. And I think Veer will turn out to have it as well. Veer's desire to completely irrational and unhinged desire to destroy Billy, kill him as quickly as possible. It's not motivated by, by envy, but we'll, we'll have to talk about what motivates it. It's it's motivated by the same sorts of things that have caused envy in Claggart. Do we have anything more to say about Claggart first, or should we get to, to Veer? Yeah, just to what, what you were saying, I think this is kind of important in chapter 14 or 15, when Claggart's referred to as monomaniacal. To your point about Billy, it says, um, I think this is talking about how he just can't understand why Claggart is down on him. The passive aggression, it completely goes over Billy's head. And he says, had the four top men been conscious of having done or said anything to provoke the ill will of the official, it would have been different with him. And his sight might have been purged, if not sharpened. As it was, innocence was his blinder. And then a little further down, the general popularity that our handsome sailor's manly forwardness upon occasion and his irresistible good nature, indicating no mental superiority, tending to excite an invidious feeling. This goodwill on the part of most of his shipmates made him the less to concern himself about such mute aspects towards him as those whereto illusion has just been made. So I, I think that what this is saying is his, his lack of mental superiority means that he's never really excited envy in very yeah, many people. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. So I'm wrong. I'm wrong about that. Yeah. It's, it's strange. So even though he's, he seems like this really enviable guy, I think Belleville is saying that he's never really encountered someone who was so able to understand him before as Claggart and therefore has never had to deal with right. envy or someone who's down on him. To truly envy him, you have to comprehend the moral phenomenon that he is. Right. I don't mean to belabor this point, but I think this just speaks to the incredible psychological complexity that Melville is dealing in here. That, that Billy and Claggart have to be well, so well-suited <laughs> to each other to bring out all of these. And, and as he says, um, as to Claggart, the monomania in the man, and this monomania, you know, of course, 
puts me in mind of Captain Ahab immediately. If that indeed were, as involuntarily disclosed by starts in the manifestations detailed, yet in general covered over by his self-contained and rational demeanor, this, like a subterranean fire, was eating its way deeper and deeper in him. Something decisive must come of it. I mean, this just seems so true to me, that the descriptions of Claggart's, um, like, little petty building petty things up and talking about making his his conscience a tutor to his will or or no a lawyer for his will this is just so so true that that in the clash of these two people that it would bring out this incredible contrast that then we just know that something even though you know Melville is telling us this and we know because the story is going somewhere that something decisive must come of it like we just know that in the clash between these two people it's almost like there's been a breach in nature and one of them or both of them are, are going to have to end up dead. And the inevitability of that, just because of the stakes that Melville sets up with this complex clash. Yeah, it's really remarkable. That's why I think we, this book could have been called Kill Billy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because the, you know, he can't possibly survive. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Once it's set up in the beginning. Yeah, he's got to go. There's a tremendous pressure and driving force, I think, towards Billy's destruction. That's a great way of putting it. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, that the psychological contrast between these two is so great that it sets up this engine towards towards both their deaths. But I think also what you're saying, which is very important, is that, yeah, I had thought of Billy as someone who might excite envy more broadly. And that, of course, is not the case. That's why he's so well-liked on the ship. And it, it takes a Claggart to be subject to that because of Claggart's unique, you know, orientation towards the good and towards the moral phenomenon that Billy is. And we get a big hint, you know, that Veer is the only other person who appreciates that as well. And of course, Veer ends up being someone who seems equally intent on <laughs> killing Billy. So, uh, so chapter 17, this is where we get some of the sense that Claggart is in love with Billy. He would catch a glance of Billy having fun with, with other sailors. And then he would get a meditative and melancholy expression. His eyes strangely suffused with incipient feverish tears. Then would Claggart look like the man of sorrows. Yes. And sometimes the melancholy expression would have in it a touch of soft yearning as if Claggart could even have loved Billy, but for fate and ban. Hmm. It's a kind of love where he wants to, he loves the moral phenomenon that Billy is and in, in a way desires to be him, but can't have those relations. Yeah. It just strikes me how many, how many times he references people's eyes. Like he talks about the, the clearness of Billy's eyes, like windows. And then the fact that his innocence though is a, is a blinder and then Claggart looking at him and having his eyes cloud. Well, we get a flash of red, right? Oh yeah. That's a great yeah, moment. Like, so that's a very devilish and isn't Veer described as having gray eyes, or, or did I just attribute those to know. him out of a sense of necessity? <laughs> Famous gray eyes as being like Athena. So should we go to the description of Veer then? Yeah, let's do that. Should we perhaps say the contrast that Melville sets up prior to this, talking a little bit about Nelson? and Yeah, let's do that. So he describes Nelson as being, as, as Tennyson calls him, the, the best sailor who ever lived or something like that. That Nelson is this uh, kind of flashy guy. And, and when he's killed at the Battle of Trafalgar, I guess the conventional wisdom was that because he was wearing all of his military adornments on his coat, that it made him a target. So he was, he was shot and, and killed at Trafalgar even though the battle was, was won, 
And that there was something about this that was maybe unmilitary about that, that he, he's too flashy, that he's too vain. And yet there's something that Melville says that we really have to admire about him. And he, he describes him as being like a priest wearing these jeweled robes ready to sacrifice himself. That Nelson was this, because of his showiness, he was like a trumpet to the blood, I think is what he's called. Because of his, his larger-than-life persona and his flashiness, he's incapable of inspiring this tremendous um, loyalty for men, which is really important at this time when so many people are mutinying. So we have the Nelson description, and then closely following it is this description of Veer, who is maybe like the anti-Nelson. So in this chapter, I guess it's chapter four, right? One of the interesting upshots of that that chapter is essentially the thesis that a sense of obligation and the ability to get things done actually sometimes requires a love of glory and even a kind of pretentiousness. He car- he compares this to like purple prose in writing. Yeah, it's like a poet putting an epic into verse or something. Yeah. So sometimes those things are more important to getting things done or to fulfilling one's obligations than dispassionate prudence, which is um, just elaborating on the on the point you just made about Nelson inspiring loyalty. There's this more general idea there that somehow fulfilling our obligations is somehow connected to this love of glory as well. We'll have to figure out how that relates to Veer because it's obviously there for a reason, and it's it, but it's not obvious how it's connected to Veer to me. You know, the appearance, I think, counts for a lot in this book. So the, the first description of Veer that we get... So Melville tells us, ashore in the garb of a civilian, scarce anyone would have taken him for a sailor, more especially that he never garnished unprofessional talk with nautical terms and grave in his bearing evinced little appreciation of mere humor. So the contrast is set up right away that the outward appearance of of Nelson, his flashiness, the idea that he, he wears all of his military adornments on his person and therefore kind of declares himself in battle and in a way it's like he he deliberately set himself up as a target or something because he was willing to put himself on the line in a strange way but the contrast with veer is that if you saw him you know he's so unpretentious that it looks like he's just a civilian on board and that also kind of contributes to this humorlessness his gravity his as we'll soon see his kind of inability to make small talk with people or relate to people in any kind of way that isn't this purely philosophical dry musing that he that he seems to do or he, he'll make like in in conversation with the sailors who are uneducated he'll make all of these references to like ancient roman philosophy and mm-hmm. <laughs> they have no idea what he's talking about so they have no personal relationship with this guy whereas nelson is all about this personal relationship i was going to read a little more of some of this description that you started reading But in this fact, his unobtrusiveness of demeanor may have proceeded from a certain unaffected modesty of manhood, sometimes accompanying a resolute nature, a modesty evinced at all times, not calling for pronounced action, which shown in any rank of life suggests a virtue of an aristocratic kind. Mm. And then it goes on to say he trays a certain dreaminess of mood and... There are times when you would be absently gazing off at the blank sea, which is a description we'll see repeated later on during the during the trial of, of Billy Budd. He'd be somewhat irascible if you interrupted his thoughts, although he would quickly hide that and suppress that. And then in chapter seven, we learn that, you know, he has a marked leaning towards everything intellectual and he reads a lot, but that his reading is he prefers nonfiction to fiction and that his reading has led him to certain quote-unquote settled convictions, which are turn out to be conservative 
convictions, convictions which run against the revolutionary ethos associated with what happened in France and with the, the mutinies. And that's because we learned that he sees these, this more conservative approach as a means to peace and to the welfare of mankind and because it leads to more stable institutions. Billy has been impressed from a ship called the Rights of Man, right? It's full of symbolic significance. It's part of that sort of slogan as part of the rationale for the French Revolution and for revolutions more generally. And what we have in Veer and the Belipitant, is that how you pronounce it? The Belipitant, the name of the ship? It might be called the Indomitable in your version. Oh, does it have another name? Yeah, it does, because there are different versions of this. And because this novella was unfinished and had to be kind of put together by people after the fact, I think it was put together in the 1920s. And then there was another version put together in the 1960s by scholars. And the name changed from the Indomitable to the Belipitant. <laughs> oh, shoot. So I've been reading from some earlier version because I, I noticed that even some of the some of the uh, passages you were reading seemed a little bit more cleaned up than mine. <laughs> now that now that you say that. What's your what's your version? This is um, Enriched Classics Edition published June 1972. And it's from an edition copyrighted 1948. Yeah. I think it was the 60s when they redid the... So they made a kind of definitive edition based on laborious scholarship and, and made some of these decisions, but I don't think it's a huge deal. So what's the name of the ship? The Belipotent, B-E-L-L-I-P-O-T-E-N-T. That's a little on the nose for me. I don't know. <laughs> I like Indomitable better. That seems more Indomitable. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So anyway, I, I was just getting at the fact that Veer is a good representative of the more conservative tendency where rights are less important than the preservation of order. You know, in chapter seven, we get what we get is that he's developed these opinions through reading and these are, you know, quote unquote, settled convictions. So he's a, basically a dogmatist. He's not really open to revision on these things. And yeah, so he's he's dry, he's bookish. Like you say, I think his preference for order over individuals is really what makes him the reverse of Nelson, maybe. And order is kind of this abstract concept. Like, he's a very abstract guy, I think. Even the fact that he just, he spends a lot of time just looking out at the ocean and pondering things and not... You know, whereas as Nelson declares his person in battle and things are very personal to Nelson, Veer strikes me as impersonal, says uh, that his fellow officers found him lacking in the companionable quality, a dry and bookish gentleman as they deemed. He's, he's not good company. Uh, there's the queer streak of the pedantic running through him. Mm -hmm. The captain's discourse never fell into the joculously familiar but in illustrating of any point, touching the stirring personages and events of the time, he would be as apt to cite some historic character or incident of antiquity as that he would cite from the moderns. And he, he had no idea of the effect that this had on people, that nobody was really interested in his examples from antiquity that they had never heard of before. So there's something just in this nickname of his, Starry Veer, that he's concerned with these with these abstractions, with these these larger issues and then can very easily apply them to real life circumstances without necessarily having like, I, mean, I, I suppose his, his conscience is bothered by this. He can take all these abstractions and apply them to these very real 
circumstances in a way that's sort of like fundamentally dispassionate. And I think that dispassionateness or that abstraction is related to this vague thinking, which I haven't fully worked out yet this morning of the, the, all these characters as being in sort of like a constellation, pardon the pun with Starry Veer, this sort of like constellation of passivity. That in a strange way that Veer deciding that Billy must die, even though it's, it's you know, a death by hanging, which is like a fundamentally active thing, like you kill someone, mm-hmm. it's actually more passive than if he had taken a, a more active measure and try and tried to save Billy. Right. So it's passivity in relation to the order to which they are subjecting themselves, so which is, you know, the starry constellation thing gets at this subservience to a, uh, a higher fixed order of things. The issue is that's being brought up is that is whether in the face of the threat of mutiny, is it better to have someone like Nelson who can win allegiance with his heroic personality or do you kind of terrorize the crew quote, the crew into base subjection, unquote. So where terrorizing them involves martial law, it involves the imposition of order without accounting for good intentions or extenuating circumstances. It's it's just the blind imposition of rules without exception as necessary to order and doing that by producing fear in people or by habituating them or by getting them to kind of in a routine way take certain steps so later on we'll see when the after billy's executed and there's sort of a murmur going up among the sailors they get called back to order and they they're essentially suppressed by being given orders and by being reincorporated into their everyday routine so the drums start up again and they have something to do and so they go back to their stations or whatever so part of it is inducing people with fear and part of it is just just relying on the fact that they are so used to certain routines and then the nelson approach is something different it is about inspiration it's about eliciting you know as you were talking about the cousin of envy which is the desire to identify and live up to some certain kind of ideal and that's the kind of thing that veer doesn't trust right Mm. and and claggart is a good case in point of what can go wrong if you do that if you try and rule things based on glory well obviously there are lots of things that can go wrong but (laughs) you risk inducing not just idolization you risk inducing envy i think is the theory whether or not that's true yeah so should we talk about veer's decision at the end and i mean have we gotten to that point yeah i think we have so do you think he did the right thing so it's hard to, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to think about what this trial and, and the ending all mean exactly. I think it's obviously wrong. I don't think there's a, and maybe that's just my prejudice coming to the fore. I kind of disagree. I mean, it is obviously wrong, but it's also, I think it also had to happen. So let's just put it this way. There's a lot of suggestion by Melville that Veer is unhinged. So in, in chapter 20, mm-hmm. we get a sense that once... So Billy responds to Claggart's accusation, first stuttering and can't defend himself. And then Veer says, defend yourself, man. And then Billy punches Claggart and Claggart dies instantly. What happens is that kind of a light bulb goes off in Veer. Some transformation has been induced in him. So this is not just about his love of law and order. There's something else that's going on and that he's in fact excited was Captain Veer suddenly affected in his mind, or was it but a transient excitement brought about by so strange and extraordinary a tragedy? This is kind of from the surgeon's point of view. 
basically what other personnel on the ship think should happen is that Billy should be confined and they should bring this before the admirable, the Navy, that they shouldn't really just act rashly and try him and execute him, that there's no real urgency to do this. But for Veer, there, there is this urgency. And so the surgeon is thinking, is Veer unhinged? And that's not the first time we'll hear that. Multiple characters will basically have that impression of him that basically Veer has lost his mind. And this brings up the idea in the surgeon, I think it is, yeah, it's still the surgeon, the possibility of mutiny, the possibility of saying, okay, you're, you're crazy. You can no longer have command of the ship, ironically. So despite the fact that there's this worry about mutiny and that law and order must be swiftly imposed, it seems like it comes close to backfiring. And we'll, we'll have to go over the chapter 21, which is the longest chapter in the trial and, and Veer's big speech and all that. Yeah, this is the irony of mutiny, right? And, and the irony of the fact that he has to try Billy under the Mutiny Act. I was trying to think about this and the inevitability of Billy's death. And, and just I was trying to just think of what is the law supposed to do? I mean, obviously, that's an incredibly difficult thing to define. But if, if we say that the law is going to be the administration of justice, then obviously justice has not been done in this case. Sometimes by following the literal letter of the law, then justice is actually like, impeded in a way. But mutinies have, I, I think, and, and Melville highlights this at the beginning, they have a sort of a mixture often of just and unjust causes. Sometimes it's right to mutiny. And then you have to deal with the consequences of that or be tried or whatever. But isn't it the case, am I getting this wrong, that if you've found just cause to commandeer the ship, then you can actually be exonerated by trial in England anyway? I don't know. That wouldn't surprise me. And it's of the Noran Spithead mutinies. The Spithead was resolved relatively quickly, right? And and the mutineers had pretty reasonable demands because they were being mistreated and their demands ultimately were met. So there was a positive outcome to that one. Right. The Nor went in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess the tension of mutiny is like, when do I have the right to break the law to serve a higher justice? And at the time, the, the Mutiny Act was put in place so that no one would ever take it upon themselves to break the law in pursuit of that, quote unquote, higher justice, because uh, the tenuous circumstances of the time means that the whole you know, English system could potentially crumble. Melville has these great descriptions of like the red embers from the French Revolution being blown across the channel and England was worried about catching fire. So the tension, I, I think, in, in this expression of the Mutiny Act is kind of the same. It's like if Veer decided that justice couldn't be served in this case by following the letter of the law, he would be in a sense like mutinying against the Mutiny Act. And that would be the ultimate hypocrisy. So I think that he had really no other choice, even though he is insane. And even though the, the very expression of, of following the Mutiny Act to the letter induces this kind of desire for mutiny or this fear of Veer's insanity in the surgeon. But I don't know. I haven't really thought enough about this, but it seems to me like it would be a hypocrisy not to follow through with the Mutiny Act. Yeah, that's really interesting. So he'll say that in one place, we proceed under the law of the Mutiny Act in feature, no child can resemble his father more than that act resembles in spirit the thing from which it derives war. In his majesty's service, in this ship indeed, there are Englishmen forced to fight for the king against her, their will, against mm -hmm. their conscience, for aught we know. And then there are people on the other side doing that as well. People, you know, basically would agree with us. Their conscripts, for instance. War looks but to the frontage, the appearance 
and the Mutiny Act towards child takes after the father. Bud's intent or non-intent is nothing to the purpose. So this is the speech he's making to the jury that of three officers that he's assembled and officers that he's chosen because he thinks they're going to just do what he wants to do, <laughs> that they're not going to make their own free decision about this because they all are attending. Of course, they, they want to exonerate Billy or because really what's going on on under ordinary circumstances, this, this isn't about law versus chaos or, or anarchy because under in a normal legal system. And as Veers had says, you know, if this were in a regular court at home, you would take into account Billy Budd's intent, take into account the fact that it was he was defending himself against a false accuser and that he didn't intend to kill Claggart and all that stuff. Ultimately, he might be convicted of manslaughter and get a whatever punishment fits that sort of crime. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff he's, he says here. Yeah. I think I, I have a good passage that might facilitate this. So he says, our, our vowed responsibility is in this, that however pitilessly that law may operate, we nevertheless adhere to it and administer it. But the exceptional in the matter moves the hearts within you. Even so too is mine moved. But let not warm hearts betray heads that should be cool. Ashore in a criminal case, will an upright judge allow himself off the bench to be waylaid by some tender kinswoman of the accused, seeking to touch him with her tearful plea? Well, the heart here denotes the feminine in man, as is that piteous woman, and hard though it be, she must here be ruled out. This gets to what you're saying, the difference between the land and sea justice or something. He, he goes through the facts and he says, well, actually he has this great part where he says, to steady us a bit, let us recur to the facts. In wartime at sea, a man of war's man strikes his superior in grade and the blow kills. Apart from its effect, the blow itself is, according to the Articles of War, capital crime. Furthermore, I, sir, emotionally broke in the officer of Marines. In one sense it was, but surely Bud purposed neither mutiny nor homicide. Surely not, my good man. And before a court less arbitrary and more merciful than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate. As the last desizes, it shall acquit. But how here? We proceed under the law of the Mutiny Act. You know, the other part of what he's saying here is that I can tell you're hesitating because of a clash of military duty with moral scruple. Scruple vitalized by compassion. Through compassion, how can I otherwise than share it? But mindful of paramount obligations, I strive against scruples that may tend to enervate decision. Not, gentlemen, that I hide from myself that the case is an exceptional one. Speculatively regarded, it might well be referred to as a jury of casuists. But for us here, acting not as casuists or moralists, it is a case practical and under martial law practically to be dealt with. But your scruples, do they move as in dusk? Challenge them, make them advance and declare themselves. So just to sum it all up, there's natural justice in which we consider motives and in which we can be motivated by scruple and by empathy and by private conscience. But none of those things are the issue in martial law. None of those things count. The intent of Billy Budd doesn't count. Our scruples and our conscience don't count. All that counts is that we have to be decisive because, you know, we might get attacked any moment now and we always have to be able to act quickly. We're always in a state of emergency. We don't have time for due process. We don't have time to think about the rights of men. All we have time to do is to look to the frontage, as he puts it. All we have to do is to analyze particular acts at the surface level without delving deeper into them, without delving into the intent and 
consciousness of the people involved into them in them and to make decisions based on that surface level analysis. So none of that really is all that convincing to the jurors. I think they would still hold out if it weren't for the final argument that he makes, is, which is that, look, if you don't convict and hang Billy Budd, the rest of the sailors are just not sophisticated enough to understand that. And you're putting us in danger of a mutiny because they will think we're fearful. They will think we've lost our nerve. They will think that we didn't have the spine to do the thing that we're supposed to do. They're not going to understand the nuances of the case and whether Billy meant to do it. They just know that Billy was accused. You know, there's a rumor that he's accused of mutiny and then he didn't, all they'll know is he didn't get punished for it. So that's a different but related sort of argument. And that's the thing that the jury in the end finds convincing. But, you know, all of this, I think, is oriented in the final analysis towards the preservation of order. There's also something else that Veer will say later on, which I think is, is worth bringing up. This is after the multitude has been, you know, after the execution of Billy Budd, when people are, they're beating to quarters an hour, hour early. And Veer says this is necessary for the mood of his men. So he's kind of suppressing their dissatisfaction by getting them back to work. And he'll say with mankind, he would say forms, measured forms are everything. And this is the import couched in the story of Orpheus with his lyre, spellbinding the wild denizens of the wood. So you don't rely on people's intentions, on their good natures, on the fact that they might be closer than not to being a Billy Bud or have the right untrained instincts. You get them to act according to these certain forms, which we can talk about that what, what that means in a second, thoughtlessly, mindlessly, just because they're told to do that just because they've been conditioned to obey authority. And that is the conservative instinct, right? And that's that's what's supposed to preserve order, especially in times of emergency where you don't have time for due process and due process could open you up to the possibility of being overtaken by the enemy or by an insurrection from within because you're no longer respected for your hardness. I think that the argument of that and the argument that uh, Veer uses to convince his faux jury turns out to be true. And, and that's why I think this is unavoidable. Veer, Veer understands how there's talk in here of men having to stand behind the, or officers rather, having to stand behind the men on these men of warships loading the cannons with with guns or with swords to make sure that none of them mutiny. So the, the direness of this situation, I think, is important to understand but then in uh, toward the last chapter, second to last chapter, there's this report of the, the newspaper article about the occurrence on the Indomitable, that Claggart had apprehended a ringleader, William Budd, and this false narrative that's created from this where Billy... Uh, let's see. Claggard in the act of arraigning the man before the captain was vindictively stabbed to the heart by the suddenly drawn sheath knife of Bud. You know, Bud is is then accused of being uh, not an Englishman, that he's a, a depraved criminal. So basically, Claggart and Billy have like switched places in this account in the newspaper. It continues that Claggart is this hero, that he is one of those petty officers upon whom His Majesty's Navy so largely depends. The criminal paid the penalty of his crime. The promptitude of the punishment has proved salutary. Nothing amiss is now apprehended aboard the HMS Indomitable. 
So it seems to me that though this story gets everything wrong, this is exactly the kind of editorializing or fantastical reporting that could open the story up to scrutiny and uh, potentially incite mutiny if Veer allowed it to go unpunished. Since Veer has swiftly killed Billy, he has put everyone's fears to rest, and they say nothing is amiss now aboard the Indomitable. So this exact kind of false report seems to me to kind of prove Veer's point. Yeah, I think it depends on, or how much credence do we put in the assumption that the causes of mutiny are about a lack of law and order, as opposed to there being about the mistreatment of the sailors, right? Uh, That's a good question. Which is kind of a classic political question, right? Are we, you know, do we get the whole defund the police thing, for instance, recently? Is it, I think the argument by some is that we don't need as many police, or maybe we don't need the police at all, which I think this is rather quixotic, but this, this is the form of the argument. We don't need them at all if we simply treat people better. And if people have enough to eat and they aren't suffering and they're treated well, and so there's no need for crime, So that's a kind of extreme, quixotic version of that argument. The other alternative, right, which we brought up at the beginning, is you have a you have a leader who inspires people Mm -hmm. and wins their allegiance, wins their loyalty, which is something that Veer cannot do and which Veer does not trust. That cult of personality, I think he probably would rightly point out, is not a good foundation for any society, for any sort of political order. Although it, even though it may work with spectacularly in some limited situations, but I think the question here is, yeah, the extent to which we're relying on the administration of social justice to produce order or to the extent to which we're relying on punitive measures and the habituation of people to follow rules and all of that stuff. So I don't know. I think maybe I'm just getting sucked in by the the views of the surgeon or my own, you know, I'm not doing enough to interrogate my own scruples, as Veer would put it. My strong feeling was that he's unhinged. He's kind of has a monomaniacal obsession with destroying Billy Budd that has nothing to really to do with what's required to establish order. And I think he has that because he, you know, it, it reflects a fundamental distrust of our own impulses. It reflects a subscription to a Hobbesian view of a state of nature, right? Nasty, brutish, and short, and we need the restrictions of civil society to take care of that. And likewise, we need the social repression of such impulses in order to make us civilized. And the opposing point of view is the Rousseauian view of human nature where civilization is the problem, right? Before civilization, we're a bunch of billy buds. We're a bunch of noble savages. And the strongest instinct, according to Rousseau, is empathy and cooperativeness and altruism. And we get aggression not because it's natural, not because violence and aggression are, are natural in a state of nature, but because civilization actually produces them. The account is more complex than that because it turns out that empathy actually helps produce violence as well because we, in empathizing with others, we come to the demand that they empathize with us. So empathy turns out to be the seed of civilization and so it leads to all of these problems anyway. But yeah, I think that's the, these are the two kind of conflicting views that, that we're getting at here. 
I'll just say, too, that arguing for Veer it puts me in an uncomfortable position because, I mean, I'm against the death penalty and yet I'm, you know. What are you, a sociopath? Yeah, exactly. It pains me to defend him, but the parallel that's drawn here for us by Melville, which is kind of interesting, is the Abraham and Isaac parallel. Though in this instance, of course, there is no reprieve from God, from from the governor. It's something that just has to be carried out because the force is larger than Abraham and the force is larger than Veer demand that it be carried out. That parallel is is kind of ironically made, I think. And there's also the chaplain who sees an exception in Billy, just as Veer perhaps doesn't see the exception in Billy. Like he says uh, that the chaplain comes to Billy, trying to kind of bring him to Christ, and and he realizes that this is a, a futile effort. Melville writes, Billy listened to, this is to the, the chaplain's kind of proselytizing speech, but less out of awe or reverence, perhaps, than from a certain natural politeness, doubtless at bottom regarding all that in much the same way that most mariners of his class take any discourse abstract or out of the common tone of the workaday world. And this sailor way of taking clerical discourse is not wholly unlike the way in which the pioneer of Christianity, full of transcendent miracles, was received long ago on tropic isles by any superior savage, so-called a Tahitian, say, of Captain Cook's time, or shortly after that time. So he's compared to the noble savage here directly, which, and I think you're saying this too, that like this idea that ascribing this kind of saintliness to native peoples or this innocence, I think, is like kind of reductive. He says the chaplain comes to this idea that Billy's innocence is actually a better thing than religion to go with him to judgment. Mm -hmm. So the chaplain is trying to bring him to Christ, but then he's like, well, you know what? Okay, this is basically just like this noble savage who's just innocent. So actually, I'm going to make an exception for this guy and not not worry so much about bringing him to Christ because there's something already saved in this prelapsarian demeanor that he has. And yet the chaplain is also described as basically just being like a canon. He's there on the ship for appearances sake only. So this is another kind of complication. So he's supposed to be a minister of the Prince of Peace, but actually he's serving on a man of warship. So he's actually serving the God of war, mm-hmm. Melville says. He's lending the sanction of religion to this, mm-hmm. this idea of a place which is fundamentally martial, right? It's, it's ruled by martial law. It is a war-making machine. And that is going to put the chaplain at odds with it. So so the chaplain has already made a kind of a moral compromise by serving as a chaplain on this ship. He has to dress up whatever the captain does under the guise of proper Christianity. Then he goes to Billy, tries to convert Billy to Christianity before his death, and finds ultimately that Billy is this exception, that he doesn't really have to convert him to Christianity because his innocence makes him not necessarily bound by the, the quote-unquote laws of religion that would say that you have to be a Christian to enter into eternal life. So the chaplain, though he is also kind of a minister of this martial law, recognizes the exception that Billy represents. At the same time, the comparison to Abraham and Isaac is showing that maybe even God or the Christian God is operating under this kind of, for lack of a better term, dogmatism that England is operating under. Though ultimately, it's only carried to a point, right? God comes in and says, okay, I don't actually want you to kill Isaac. He wants to know that Abraham's obedience transcends to him as God transcends. Right, right. 
right. any ethical commitment, any commitment to a set of ethical rules, which is comparable to martial authority. And, you know, you obey the king, not your conscience and not, not normal legal stuff. Right. What I'm kind of arguing here that even though Veer is in the service of war, uh, which is, you know, the opposite of what Christ represents, the Prince of Peace represents, he's actually maybe doing something more biblical than not. <laughs> well, so he's been compared to Pilate, right? And some writers have compared him to Pontius Pilate, who actually did not share the Pharisee's sense of urgency about putting Christ to death and did so somewhat reluctantly, right? And then washed his washed his hands of it. But in this case, you get the sense that Veer's sense of urgency about killing Billy Budd has something to do with the urgency to create a kind of sacrifice as a means to the achievement of some sort of salvation. So on the one hand, what I think is going on is that what's threatening about Billy Budd is he represents the possibility of goodness that is anarchical, goodness that is not necessarily related to civilization and to order and to the types of things that we typically rely on and think we have to rely on to create order and goodness in society. And so it seems like a counterexample and an, an exception to the rule that could destroy the rules altogether. And so in a way, Billy Budd, you know, you might think that there's a possibility of him being a kind of anti-Nelson, inducing in people a kind of loyalty to the purely instinctual good nature that would cause them to uh, become essentially anarchists, to cause them to become mutineers, to cause them to think that we don't need rules. We don't need no education, right? We can all be noble savages. Where for Claggart, he envies Billy's goodness and therefore must destroy it. Veer must destroy it because it doesn't fit in with his concept of the good and what creates the good, the sort of civilizational forms that are necessary for the good. But just extending that, I haven't thought this through, but I wonder how the concept of sacrifice works here. Because as we know, you know, he's sort of a Christ figure. Well, he's very obviously, it's not really subtle at all, right? He becomes a Christ figure at the end and it's kind of worshipped by the other sailors. But the question is why the sacrifice is necessary. You know, sacrifice is not unrelated to envy, right? The envious person wants to destroy the pure and good thing. And what is the sacrificial impulse and how is it related to, to envy? That's what I haven't really worked out yet. Hmm. You know, why the strong urge to make a sacrificial example of Christ, for that matter, as much as a Billy Bud, right? They're human exemplars. They're living embodiments of something that is normally abstract, something that is of a goodness that we don't normally get in that form that we think as emergent, usually on some kind of social order. And you would think that we would see those things as something that we need to preserve, that we need to preserve the individual as a like the best exemplar of that social order. And somehow, by virtue of being that best exemplar, they become inconsistent with the order itself and their sacrifice can represent a commitment to that order. That's the really crazy thing. Mm, yeah. And that desire to bring the abstract into the physical realm is sort of, you know, we even have the spar on which he's hung, relicized in the last chapter, where just to chip off the, the piece of the cross, I think something about the sacrifice and its relation to envy is maybe paralleled in that same, like the desire to have a, have a relic of a sacrifice 
is maybe related to that good kind of envy or that not quite envy that we were talking about before, the aspirational nature of making Billy out to be a folk hero and of having a, a piece of his sacrifice that you can carry with you. That creation of a relic is uh, more Nelsonian than mm-hmm. it is Virian. Yeah. <laughs> Viral. Viral. That's uh. good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very well put. Do we want to read any of the last part of this as our way of saying goodbye to Billy as he's interred in the ocean? Sure. He's buried at sea then and his body is surrounded by these birds. The details of this closing formality it needs not to give. But when the tilted plank let slide its freight into the sea, a second strange human murmur was heard, blended now with another inarticulate sound proceeding from certain larger sea fowl, whose attention having been attracted by the peculiar commotion in the water, resulting from the heavy sloped dive of the shotted hammock into the sea, flew screaming to the spot. So near the hull did they come, that the strider or bony creak of their gaunt double-jointed pinions was audible. As the ship under light airs passed on, leaving the burial spot astern, they still kept circling it low down with the moving shadow of their outstretched wings and the croaked requiem of their cries. Yeah, really great. And this is another one of the things that leads to, the, because of the superstition of the sailors, you know, they begin to, there's a co- kind of commotion gradually rising in them, like what Melville in several places calls the murmur that's put down by the drumbeat of them being returned to their stations, their work. Did you want to read that one last bit, the talk about the hanging his body? Yeah, so the purser is talking about the fact that Billy, when he's hung, his body doesn't twitch and spasm the way that I guess most bodies do after they're they're hung, after they're dead. So the purser is discussing with the surgeon how strange it was that Billy's body just is moving with the ship. It says, uh, the pinion figure arrived at the yard end to the wonder of all. No motion was apparent, none save that created by the ship's motion. So he's just swinging along with the motion of the ship. Again, this uh, kind of like naturalness, like he's one with the, the wind or the waves or something. And so the purser says, what testimony to the force lodged in willpower? He's wondering, like, is it possible that Billy could have willed his body to be still after death so that he didn't spasm? And the surgeon replies, your pardon, Mr. Purser. In a hanging scientifically conducted and under special orders, I myself directed how Buzz was to be affected. Any movement following the completed suspension and originating in the body suspended, such movement indicates mechanical spasm in the muscular system. Hence, the absence of that is no more attributable to willpower, as you call it, than to horsepower, begging your pardon. And the purser says, but this muscular spasm you speak of, is it not that in a degree more or less invariable in these cases? Assuredly so, Mr. Purser. How then, my good sir, do you account for its absence in this instance? Mr. Purser, it is clear that your sense of the singularity in this matter equals not mine. Your account for it by what you call willpower, a term not yet included in the, in the lexicon of science— For me, I do not with my present knowledge pretend to account for it at all. Even should we assume the hypothesis that at the first touch of the halyards, the action of Bud's heart, intensified by extraordinary emotion at its climax, abruptly stopped, much like a watch when in carelessly winding it up you strain at the finish, thus snapping the chain, ever under that hypothesis how account for the phenomenon that followed. So they're almost saying that it could be that he died right before the hanging or right before the moment of the hanging because he was so overcome with emotion that his heart stopped and therefore he was not properly hung or rather his was not a death by hanging. And so they then describe this idea of of euthanasia, like he killed himself by his own willpower so as not to spasm after his death and the singularity of the 
easy nature of his death or the, the beauty of it is what makes it so peculiar to the purser. And then the surgeon tries to account for it through science and says, well, there's no such thing as willpower in science, which maybe is uh, another point that I have to work out for this whole passivity thing, that the idea that he could have willed himself to die so that he wouldn't make any more uh, movement than was necessary is uh, not to be accounted for, according to the surgeon. It's interesting. Like he would have finally exerted his will, but only so as not to move. (laughs) Right. Interesting. Yeah. But another thing that lends itself to his his kind of divine status in the story. Right. All right. Okay. Are we done? I think so. With poor poor Billy. Poor Billy. What a mensch. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partially Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. 